You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. I'm Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. We've been in a study in the book of Daniel. Not, not too far into the study, so if you're new here, if this is your first Sunday, you haven't missed a ton yet, but let me go ahead and just review for you very quickly where we've been at so far. Uh, we've witnessed Daniel and these, these three other friends of his, these uh, um, exiles out of Judah who've been deported into this dark, um, pluralistic, hostile empire called Babylon. And they've been forced to assimilate, they've changed their names, they've taught them all new cultures and customs and languages and crafts and arts and all these sorts of things. And as you read through chapter 1, you think to yourself, how in the world are these guys going to make it? Their backs are against the wall, the odds are totally against them. How are these guys going to remain faithful in the midst of this empire? Not just remain faithful, but are they going to thrive? Are they going to flourish? And what we find out as you keep on reading chapter 1 is that Daniel outlasts the Babylonian empire, meaning he sees its demise in his lifetime and he remains standing in the king's court as one kingdom ends and one kingdom rises. And so it's this, this um, great literary uh, 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 thing that Daniel does as the author to show that when the odds were against him and his friends, when it seems like, it, like they wouldn't flourish, when it seems like they wouldn't make it as, as exiles, in fact, the opposite takes place. They flourish, they succeed, they triumph. And so we come now to uh, chapter 2, where we have our first look at the, a prophetic passage. And some of you here, maybe who've read the book of Daniel, have been waiting for a week like these, where we're getting into prophecy finally, some predictions about the future. And that's what we have here today, our first passage about predictions concerning the future of the world. And even still, though, as we have been looking through the story of Daniel, seeing him as a model for us about, about concerning what it looks like to be in exile, even still in these predictions, in this dream, in this revelation, this prophecy that we're going to dig into and study now, we still see here instruction for us on how to live as exiles, how to conduct ourselves as exiles, what to believe while we are sojourning through this age as exiles. So we're going to see four points today. Here's what the future holds for us. One, King Jesus wins. Two, the kingdom wins. Three, there's the wrong response. And four, there's a right response. King Jesus wins. His kingdom wins. There's a wrong response and there's a right response. I'm excited to get into this stuff with you guys today. Before we do that, let's bow our heads and pray, okay? Father, you rule over all creation, and we come before you now understanding that you hold our lives, you hold our times, you hold all times, all history and all future in your hands. Lord, nothing can oppose you, nothing can thwart your purposes, nothing can stand against you and win. Lord, there's no competition for you. You are supreme. You are preeminent. You are almighty. You are all-powerful. And the best news of all, Father, is that you are for us, that you will help us, that you will sustain us, that you will cause us to persevere, that you will refresh us, and you have made promises to us 
that you are with us until the end of the age. And God, we know that the nations rage and injustices occur and darkness is real. But Lord, we have hope in you nonetheless, that you are already undoing sadness and already undoing injustice and already at work in our lives and around us, Lord. And we look forward to the day where you do wipe away every single tear and make all things right and make all things new. You are our last and final great hope. We confess these things and ask you to bless us in this time. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. King Jesus wins. Let's go ahead and tackle that first. So, you know, Eve read, and she read this, you know, uh, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Remember, he, he demands from his counselors that they give him not only the interpretation of the dream, but they give him the content of the dream. And Daniel prays for that. God gives it to him. And here's Daniel now approaching Nebuchadnezzar to give him both the content of his dream and the interpretation of his dream. So let's go ahead and I want to break some of these things down really quickly because uh, I know some of you are like have questions like, what is this statue? Is it a metaphor? What does it represent? What does it mean? We're not going to spend a ton of time concerning the statue today. It's not the, the, really the primary part of the passage, but I'll go ahead and uh, appease you anyway and give you some breakdown of what this statue represents. It's going to connect to the rest of the book in the book of Daniel. There's tons of prophecy in the second half of the book, chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and uh, a, much of the imagery, I would say all of the imagery, all the symbols, all of the dreams that we're going to see in the rest of the book, uh, they're the same message, the same... Um, thing as what we see here is different symbols, different imagery, maybe some different phrases, but it's all talking about the same event, the same reality from different vantage points. So I'm going to go ahead and appease you and try to give you a breakdown of what the statue represents. It'll connect us to the rest of the book as well. So we see that the content of this dream, what he sees is this massive statue, okay? It has a golden head, it has chest and arms of silver, its torso and thighs are bronze, its legs are iron, and its feet and toes were a mixture of iron and clay, remember? So the interpretation, what this statue is, is it represents various kings and kingdoms throughout time. We already know, Daniel tells us in this same chapter, that the golden head represents Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. The silver chest and arms represent the Median Persian Empire. Uh, the king of that empire who we will meet in this very book is Cyrus or his other name, Darius. The bronze torso, though, the next part of the statue is bronze torso, torso and thighs represent Greece. And of course, the, the main person you think of when you think about Greece is Alexander the Great. He'll be making an appearance in the later prophecies and predictions in the book of Daniel. And so will another character by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He is a ruler, a uh, king of Greece. And then, of course, second to last, there's the iron legs. This represents the Roman Empire. And lastly, there's this mixture of iron and clay. And I think this represents all the kingdoms of the world that come after Rome throughout all time and all history and all of the world. So what we're talking about here is these successive kingdoms that are going to occur throughout time, not only in Daniel's lifetime, but after his lifetime, going from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome and then everything after. That's what this statue represents, kings and kingdoms from here and then throughout all time. 
Now, some confusion maybe about this iron and clay, like what does this mean? There's some details in that. In verse 43 that talk about this statue, that's a little bit confusing. So I'll go ahead and tell you what I think this means. Uh, it mentions the iron and clay and the toes. I think this means that some of the strengths of the Roman Empire, things like democracy, things like their view of economics, things like some philosophy, arts, and humanities, those things that were cultivated in the Roman Empire are going to last. They're going to make their way into the world, into every culture, most cultures, into all of the, all of the globe. So much of the Roman Empire and its strengths are going to last into the rest of the kingdoms of the world thereafter. But also, it says that there's going to be clay mixed in with iron, which if, if you know anything about these things, those don't mesh. The clay is brittle. It's not going to mix well, so it's going to cause breakdown. It's not going to be a very good or sure or steady foundation for this statue. So I think what this means is that these good things from the Roman Empire that are going to make their way into every culture and every kingdom thereafter are going to be meshed with ideals and values that will, event, that will also weaken it. It also says that these kingdoms will be characterized by intermarriage. I don't know if you saw saw that in verse 43. So I think what this means is the world will become more multicultural, more multi-ethnic, more pluralistic, more global, become less monolithic. And you think that's that's different. In much of these kingdoms, it's one culture, one ethnicity, one language, one people group, having this global, this uh, melting pot of culture and kingdoms. That's, That's not something that really is taking place yet, but he's saying here in the stream that that's the future of the world. This, this dynamic, uh, multi-ethnic, multicultural, global sort of world that's going to be taking place. And just a little foreshadowing, okay, a little foreshadowing. The explanation I gave of all those kingdoms and the successive uh, nature of them, if you go to chapter 7 and read the beginning of it and the end of it, you'll see that it's a lot easier to read with the framework I just gave. If you go to chapter 8, you'll see that the breakdown of the kingdoms I just gave are confirmed explicitly. Uh, the angel tells Daniel in chapter 8 that that third kingdom is, in fact, the kingdom called Greece. You'll see even Alexander the Great in some of these prophecies alluded to. And much of the symbol- symbolism and explanations in chapters 9 and 10 uh, are also uh, really parallel what we see here in chapter 4. So we'll get into the weeds of those chapters. All in time, we're going to get into the weeds of those things, but I just want to give you some clarity. I want to go ahead and answer some of those questions that you might have as you come to these, uh, these vivid, this vivid imagery and this statue. I want to give you clarity as we make our way into the rest of this dream and the rest of its interpretation. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's receiving a vision here that predicts the future. Successive kingdoms that will strengthen as they, as, they, as they progress on. But the main part of this dream, the main part of this interpretation, is something we have not talked about yet. Look what happens to this statue. What happens to this great, majestic statue in verses 34 and 35? I'll read it. It says this. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And that word for broke is literally pulverized, like destroyed. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. The stone that had struck the image, what happens to that stone? It became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. 
So these kingdoms, what we see here, they're pulverized, completely just destroyed by this one singular individual stone. It's not a great boulder, it's just a little itty-bitty stone. It's uncreated. It says, it says it's made without human hands. So it's this supernatural, uncreated stone. And the stone, it says, grows into this great mountain that fills the entire world. I want to go ahead and explain those first two details here, that the stone is uncreated and the stone completely destroys the kingdoms of the world. So first, let's talk about the stone that's uncreated class. <laughs> Who is the stone that is uncreated? We all know the answer. If you've been to Sunday school, Jesus is Jesus. Jesus is the stone that pulverizes the statue. First uh, Colossians 1, 15, 17. Look, look at this. It says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is uncreated, the preexistent Son of God. John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. In the beginning, he was with God. Jesus is the uncreated one. He is the preeminent one. And Jesus, the stone, it says, is going to break these kingdoms in pieces so they are like chaff in the wind. Chaff in the wind. Now, we just studied Psalms, the book of Psalms before this. So if you recall at all what we talked about, a main theme in Psalm chapter 1 is what, you remember? That the wicked are like chaff, that the wind drives away. It's almost as if God... And it's not as if he is. God is referencing Psalm chapter 1 in this dream, using imagery from Psalm chapter 1 to convey a real point, which is that the kingdoms of this world will be driven away like chaff in the wind. And it says in Psalm 2, what? The very next Psalm, which is meant to be read with Psalm chapter 1, says things like this, the nations rage and plot. They take counsel against the Lord and his Messiah. God sits in the heavens, though, and laughs, and he does this because he has set his king, his Messiah, on the throne in Zion. He tells this king, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You, Messiah, king, shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus is the king who's going to end all kingdoms. Jesus is the king who is unmatched. His kingdom is unmatched. And just a side note, okay, just a side note, because uh, I want to explain some things as we go through this. Uh, in chapter 8, in Daniel chapter 8, later on prophecy, it talks about Satan and his false messiah, the Antichrist. And I want you to notice what it says here about Satan, his, his tactics, and his false messiah, the Antichrist. It says this in chapter 8, verse 25. By his cunning, the false messiah, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes. That's Jesus. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So it seems as if there's this, there's this theme in the book of Daniel that it's this uncreated one, this stone made without human hands, this, this, uh, this supernatural being who is going to end all things, even Satan and his kingdom. That's what this means, but the question maybe you're asking that I asked as I prepared is, when will this happen? 
When is this all going to take place? Here's the answer. You ready? It already has, but not yet fully. It already has taken place, but still more is yet to come. See, when Jesus arrives, literally, he begins his ministry by saying what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, meaning Jesus has initiated his kingdom, (laughs) his kingdom to end all kingdoms right away. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is at hand. So Jesus, in his ministry, he, he pushes back sin over and over, opposes sin. And then Jesus, when he dies, he pays the penalty of sin. Then when he resurrects, he begins to weaken the power of sin in the world. And then when he returns one day, he will absolutely eliminate the very presence of sin. So it's already happened. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he's already inaugurated his kingdom that's going to end all kingdoms. That's going to end all injustice. That's going to end all darkness. That's going to end all sadness. But he will complete what he has started when he returns one day. All in all, all in all, everything I'm saying here is what's confirmed in 1 Peter chapter 2, which Liam read for us when we were worshiping together. It says this. I'll review it for you. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you join Jesus' kingdom, you will not be disappointed. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. So you see how this is just one of many passages. Ephesians chapter 2 called Jesus the cornerstone. It's this, it's this known concept that Jesus is the stone. He's the stone made without human hands to come and make all things new. Already, not yet. So all in all, all in all, Jesus is going to come, make all things new, and finish what he has started. That's the stone who's uncreated, who demolishes the statue. But there's another detail in there that we missed, which is that this stone expands, becomes a great mountain, and fills the entire world. What does that mean? What is that referring to? And that's where you come in. That's you. That's us. That's us here, right here, right now. Look at verse 44. The king wins. The kingdom wins. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. A kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. And that's an incredible statement. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the author there mourns and grieves the reality that one person can work their whole entire life to build an empire, to build a legacy, but when they die and hand it off to somebody else, they will be forgotten and that legacy will eventually break down and be no longer relevant, be no longer powerful, no longer be what it was. That's just the way of things, but this kingdom, it will never end. It will not go that way. This kingdom will never end. It will never be destroyed. It will never be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. See, you can't separate the king's victory, his success, from the kingdom's success, those who inhabit the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom. His victory is our victory. And this is confirmed in Daniel 7. Let me go ahead and read this to you. 
This is what Daniel chapter 7, another prophecy later on, says about you and I, those of us who are citizens of his kingdom. There Daniel receives this vision. He sees this vision of this human called the Son of Man who is presented before the Ancient of Days, God. And here's what Daniel writes. Here's what the Ancient of Days declares actually to the Son of Man. It says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom through us shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. His victory is our victory. Jesus' success against all opposition is our success against all opposition. But again, the question is, when will this happen? How will this take place? What should we expect? And the same answer I gave for the stones is the same answer for us who are part of the great mountain who fills the whole entire earth. It already has happened, but not yet fully. Let me go ahead and, and we're, this is a teaching heavy sermon, okay? A lot of cross-referencing. I want to fill in the blanks for you. I want to show you how this is all fulfilled in Jesus and then what he projects for the future, okay? Look at Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. Here's how I'm going to answer this question. How has this happened? Has this occurred? Yes, it has. Let me show you. Matthew 16, 13 through 18. <clears throat> It'll be behind me. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Here's the key phrase. Here's the key sentence. It says, and I tell you, you are Peter, Petros. That's the original language, Petros. It's a stone. It means little rock or stone. He says, you are Peter, but on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now there's a few different variations of interpretation of this. Here's what I think this means. Jesus says, you are Petros, but on this Petra, that's what stone is, on this rock, on this Petra, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, I will build my church and the gates, listen there, the gates of hell will not prevail. Now gates, that's defensive, not offensive. See, we tend to think that, oh, the darkness is winning. Oh, the enemy is winning. He's taking... No, 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 no. Jesus and his kingdom is taking ground. Jesus and his king is, kingdom is advancing to the very gates of hell. We're taking ground. We're advancing. That's Jesus's vision for the stone that becomes a great mountain that fills the entire world. Jesus sees then what, how he you know, keeps this story going, this train of thought going, is it's through the church, his people. It's through the church that this kingdom expands to fill the entire world and bring about the victory of Jesus on earth until he comes again and brings it about fully. Okay? Now, <clears throat> we're in an age of skepticism, I know. We're in an age of anti-institutionalism where we talk about church 
This the church that Jesus has instituted to be the, 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 the great mountain that fills the whole entire world. I know we're in an age of isolation where we don't like community, but Jesus, listen here, Jesus has installed the church as an institution and as a community to carry on his work on earth until he returns. Jesus has installed an, an institution and a community called the church to carry on his work. Let me break down how this works. How the stone, how does the stone become a great mountain that fills the whole earth? See, here's how this breaks down. The church is this dynamic institution. It is. Where we gather together, we're strengthened, we're strengthened here, then we are sent back out into the darkness to be exiles, to be lights, to be witnesses, to be like Daniel in Babylon. Then we return and are strengthened. Then we go back out, repeat on and on. It's this dynamic institution and community that helps us live faithfully as exiles. So we push back darkness and expand the borders of the kingdom all across the world. So here, here's a few questions. Why do we sing? Why do we get together and sing out loud? Like, why do we do that? It's because when we hear other brothers and sisters singing their hope like it's an anthem, it puts courage in our hearts. It blesses us. Why do we read and recite scripture when we gather together? It's because we want to recalibrate our hearts and minds to what is true, to what is timeless, to what is the true story that we are participants in. Why do we sit under preaching like right now? It's because we want to grow in our knowledge of God so that we will increase in our love for Him and be durable and last. Not, not living faithfully as exiles just because we're supposed to, just because I know the answers to these questions, but living faithfully as exiles because I delight in Him, because I love Him, because He is the source of my life. You can't get there, though. Your heart can't love what your mind doesn't know. So why do we sit under preaching? To be strengthened in our minds so we can be strengthened in our hearts, so we can be strengthened in our witness. Why do we practice baptism? Why do we do that here? It's because we want to tell the whole world that our allegiance has shifted from darkness to the light. We want our church family to hold us accountable to our confession. Why do we practice the supper every single week? Why do we do that here as we gather? It's because we want to remind ourselves of the past victory we have in Jesus when he died for us and set us free from sin, the present hope we have that he is always with us and the future hope that we have that he will return and we will have this meal together in a new kingdom. That is why we take the supper every single week to put courage and hope in our hearts to keep on persevering. And as we gather and as we practice all of these things, we mark ourselves off as this unique human society. It's like this is the closest we'll get to glory as we realize that, that this is like heaven on earth. It makes us long for our true home. It makes us long for when all things will be made new. It makes us long for when this, this stone <laughs> that's a, becoming a great mountain it makes us long for when it's the whole entire world. So this, the church is this institution this community that Jesus invented. It was his idea to give us life as exiles amidst our sojourning. And now imagine this. We're talking about us right now. Like I'm talking about what we do here matters. It strengthens us. It helps us expand the borders of the kingdom. But think about this. This is wild. Imagine this happening all across the globe. And it is. 
Imagine what's happening here, canvassed across the entire world. That's Jesus' vision exactly. What does he say in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven has been given to me. Go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to do all I've commanded you, and I am with you until the end of the age. See, Jesus' idea that what happens here expands all across the globe. Before he ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1, he tells his apostles, go to Judea, go to Samaria, go to the ends of the world. See, Jesus understands that the stone that becomes a great mountain that fills the whole world is us gathering together, being sent back out, expanding the borders of the kingdom until he returns. See, what Daniel sees and what Jesus envisions, I like this, this is, what, this is what Tolkien right, depicts when Gandalf returns from the dead. Gandalf returns and Sam asks, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer is yes, because Jesus has risen, because he has initiated his kingdom. Everything sad is already being undone. Not yet fully. There are tears, there is grief, there is darkness, but that sadness, it's already, being, it's already coming undone. And then it says Gandalf laughs. And Sam says that laugh, it sounded like water in a parched land. Look, we are in a parched land until Jesus returns, but we hear his laughter. And as we keep walking with him, that laughter, the noise, the volume of the laughter, it will increase and increase and carry us home. This is Jesus' vision. If we have this victory, if we have this church, community as this courage-infusing, hope-reinforcing institution, when we go out into Babylon, what do we do? Now we're shifting from teaching to, to application here, okay? What do we do? What difference should this make in our life that the king wins and the kingdom wins? How does that touch us now? Well, we do what Daniel did. Look what he did in the verses 48 and 49. I think he's a good model for us. Look at this. It says, then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Here we go. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar just got the worst news of his life, that he will see a demise of himself and his kingdom that his legacy will not last, that he will be forgotten. Daniel doesn't relish in it. He doesn't wave his pom-poms, you know. What does Daniel do? <laughs> he stays. He stays, and listen, he uses his position. He uses whatever amount of authority and power he has, whatever rank he has, to do what? To be a blessing to be a blessing to others, to strategically, wisely advance the kingdom. Now let me ask a question here, okay? Where do you think Daniel got this idea? Where do you think he got this idea that he shouldn't separate, he shouldn't flee, he shouldn't assimilate either, but he should stay and, and occupy his place in the culture with excellence, without compromise, and in love. Where do you think he got that idea? Let me read something to you really interesting here. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says this. In the first year of Darius, the son of 
I wasn't ready for that name. Sorry, guys. I'm just going to go ahead and skip it. All right. By descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived, look at this, uh, in the books of the numbers of years, that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot there I'm not going to touch. I only want to make the point that Daniel, Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. Think about that. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Jeremiah is his contemporary. They know each other. uh, Jeremiah is back in Judah. Daniel's been deported to Babylon, but they're living at the same time, and Jeremiah is doing his ministry while these, these Jewish people are being deported to Babylon his prophetic ministry. He's reading what we have. Isn't that interesting? So what do you think Daniel's reading? A lot. But here's one thing, certainly, certainly that he read, that influenced him, that gave him his blueprint for how he should conduct himself as an exile. Jeremiah 29 says this, God tells the exiles of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts. This is what Daniel's read. This is what Daniel embodies. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city. Of, yes, dark, wicked, secular Babylon. Seek its welfare. Seek its good. Pray for its good. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into this exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's how Daniel got the blueprint. To not separate, to not flee, to not assimilate, but stay and occupy and be a blessing until the Lord tells you something different. And this is interesting, because the very chapter before in Jeremiah 28, there's a false prophet who says, oh, in two years' time, all the exiles will return, and then Babylon's going to fall, and we'll rejoice when that happens. And Jeremiah, the next chapter says, that's not true, don't listen to that. You're there for a long time, stay put. Get comfortable as exiles Don't separate, don't flee, don't leave. Occupy your place in the culture. In other words, Daniel, exiles, citizens' church, partner with God in what he is doing in the world. He has inaugurated his kingdom through his life and death and resurrection. He has launched a new kingdom, and he is inviting you and I into it to expand its borders all across the world. Essential to that is gathering, being strengthened to be sent out. Partner with God in what he is doing. This should encourage Daniel. It should encourage the exiles who come after him. It should encourage you and I today, all exiles should be encouraged by the reality that the king wins and his kingdom wins. But there is a wrong response. There is a wrong response to this. And I hate to pick on him, but Nebuchadnezzar again shows us how to get it wrong. Last week he got it wrong. This week he gets it wrong. Maybe one day he'll get it right. We'll see. But Nebuchadnezzar shows us how to get this wrong, and here's what he does. Here's what we're going to see. This is the wrong response to the fact that our kingdoms are crumbling, 
and his kingdom lasts forever. Here's the wrong response. To offer superficial allegiance instead of sincere allegiance. That is the wrong response. Look at verse 46. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's pretty typical. Daniel represents God, and he's just honoring God in that act. But here's, what's, here's where we begin to see something wrong. It says in the next sentence, or next phrase, and commanded that an offering and an incense be offered up to him, to Daniel, and therefore vicariously to God. This, it's this offering that should make us pause. See, an offering, this incense, it's a way to appease a, a, a deity. It's a way to satiate a, 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 an angry God. What Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is he is offering a quick fix. See, Nebuchadnezzar is not interested in turning to God and humbling himself and dedicating himself to God and joining God's kingdom. The threat of impending judgment doesn't cause him to surrender. Instead, it causes him to seek a quick fix. He merely, listen here, this is so important. Nebuchadnezzar merely wants to avoid the consequences of his sin rather than deal with his sin. He merely wants to avoid the consequences of his pride and of his kingdom and of of the sources of trust that he has accumulated in his life. He just wants to avoid the consequences of those things, but not actually repent and turn from those things. He is offering superficial allegiance. Just a quick fix, a quick fix. And this leads us to the next problem we see in verse 47. Look at this. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly, Your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now, on the surface, that looks pretty good, but if you pay close attention, it's not so good because God is just one of the gods. He might be supreme. In this moment, he might be the most impressive God, but he is God of gods, Lord of kings, revealer of mysteries, but he's not exclusive. He's not the one last, final hope. In this moment, he is that option, but it's not going to last forever. It's not going to be forever. It's not final. It's not lasting. It's temporary. See, he's just adopting God as just one of his sources of help, one of his sources of trust, one of the gods in the pantheon of gods that Nebuchadnezzar has in his life. And of course, if someone offers this kind of superficial allegiance where they're not truly repenting and changing course, but instead just modifying their behavior for a time to avoid the consequences of their sin, then of course they will not see God as the only last and final hope. They will see him as the answer for a time, but not all time. Superficial allegiance. Do you, do you know what to look for? in your life to know whether or not that, that's you, that you're offering God not sincere but superficial allegiance. It's when you love your sin more than God, so much so that you don't actually want to deal with your sin, you just want to deal with the consequences of your sin. And another evidence that you have superficial allegiance is that you put your hope and trust in something else more than God. You love your sin more than God, you trust in something else more than God. That's how you know it's superficial. And that's how you know it won't last, that it will not last, (laughs) that you're just modifying something in the moment, that you're just receiving a quick fix, that you're not actually ceasing to build your own empire, (laughs) that 
You're not actually ceasing to put your hope in something else. You're just trying to plug some holes. And this is exactly, exactly, ironically, what we see in Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 3, verse 1. We didn't read it. I'll read it for you. It says this. This is interesting. <clears throat> King, King Nebuchadnezzar, he made an image of gold. Hmm, okay. Sounds familiar. Whose height was 60 cubits. That's about as tall as the, as the Statue of Liberty. In his breadth, six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. We find out in a few verses later that he commanded all the whole empire to bow to it and worship it. And of course, what does the gold represent? Him. That's what the dream said. He's the head of gold. Here's what one commentator, here's what one commentator says. He says it really well. The irony of this. Having just dreamed of an image in chapter 2, wherein he, Nebuchadnezzar, was represented by the head of gold to be followed by three other human kingdoms represented by silver, bronze, clay, and iron, Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image of gold from top to bottom in view of the demand that all are to worship the image or die. It would appear that Nebuchadnezzar has set up this golden image to declare that his kingdom will not be replaced by those of silver, bronze, clay, and iron. It will be gold all the way down. It will not see demise. It will not end. It will last forever. He will not. He will not repent. He'll dig his heels in the ground. See, the fundamental issue, deep down issue, Underneath superficial allegiance is that you do not think you are so lost, so guilty, so in danger, in great danger, that your self-reliance and self-righteousness crumble. You're not convinced. You're not so convinced that you, that what you're doing is not working, that the empire building is, is not going to last. You're not so convinced yet. You're not convinced you need another final last option. You still think that your kingdom, your statue will work. That is what is operating underneath superficial allegiance. Uh, even underneath loving your sin more than God, even underneath trusting other things more than God is the fact that you're just not convinced that it's not going to work. That's the wrong response. Conversely, there is a right response, though. There is a right response, and here's what it is. I'm not going to spend much time on this. I just want this to be short and sweet and to the point. The right response is then to repent. And, and I know that word is like cringy, like, ooh, repentance. That's so traditional and suffocating and narrow. Ugh, you know, it's a beautiful word, actually, because here's what repentance is. Repentance, and I think we get this wrong. I think we forget this. Repentance is turning from that empire, turning from the life you're trying to build on your own, in your own strength, so that you can appear righteous and blameless, when all along all it's doing is hurting yourself and others. Repentance is turning from sin, but not just turning from. Here's what's so beautiful. But turning to Turning to what? A king. A king who is not too proud to receive his enemies. 
A king who is not too proud, who's, who's not going to snub you for coming to him open hand and saying, I am spiritually bankrupt. I got nothing to offer. Everything I'm trying to build, everything I have in and of myself, it's not working. I'm not, I'm not who I thought I was. I come to you, King Jesus, open-handed. He is lavish in grace, abundant in love, rich in mercy. He is not too proud to receive even a beggar. Even his enemies. Repentance is not just turning from and then trying not to do it again. Repentance is turning from what is icky, what is dark, what is destructive to a grace and a love that will never, ever, ever run out. That's good news for you if you are not yet a Christian and it's good news for you if you are a Christian because we're all broken. And we all constantly need to practice repentance the rest of our life, turning from, turning to, turning from darkness to the light. Romans 3 says, All have sinned, but are justified by His grace as a gift. As a gift. Romans 6 says that the free gift of God is eternal life. See, the king is not too proud to receive you today, tomorrow, and ever after. The king wins and his kingdom wins. There's a wrong response, oh, but there is certainly a right response and it is good. Let's pray. God, we come to you now and we just exclaim that you are wonderful and that we are so glad that you have adopted us into your kingdom. God, I pray today, if there's anyone here who is curious, who is seeking, who's questioning, God, I pray that, you, that they would feel your call on them right now and that they would understand that you are summoning them to come into your kingdom to be a part of your victory, to no longer be a part of the way of their life that will only, like the statue, just crumble in time, has no sure and steady foundation, that they will realize, like all of us must realize, that the only sure and steady foundation we have is in you, Jesus. God, I pray that you would give us the grace to turn from our sin to you, to embrace you, to not love our sin more than you, to not just simply want to deal with the consequences, but rather to turn from the sin completely and, and to embrace your marvelous mercy and grace. I pray that we would trust you and hope in you more than anything else, more than a spouse, a relationship, a job, money, uh, politics, whatever it may be, God. I pray that we would turn from our false counterfeit sources of hope to our true and lasting living hope, you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.